0: Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds
0: Hello and thank you for joining us on another episode of Battle Walks as we walk through the pages of history. We're still on a slight hiatus from regular programming as Pete leads tours across the battlefields of the Western Front and incidentally I hope you've had the chance to join Pete on one of those tours because it's an extraordinary thing to walk the ground in the footsteps of these heroes and I'm looking forward to getting over there pretty soon and walking the ground with him again. It's one of my favourite things to do. But in the meantime, I wanted to keep bringing you some good content. And so it's the anniversary of D-Day this week. So what better time to bring you a great conversation I had with a friend of mine, Richard Osgood. And Richard is an archaeologist from the Ministry of Defence in the UK. And he gets to dig on battlefields from across the centuries. But he has a particular fondness for the First and the Second World Wars. And he's he's just done an extraordinary thing. He's just completed a dig on the site where Easy Company, the famous band of brothers who parachuted into Normandy on D-Day, the site in England where they trained for nine months before they went and and parachuted into Normandy on D-Day. So just an extraordinary part of the story that we don't know particularly well. And Richard is a great bloke, and he really brought it to life in this conversation. So on this anniversary of D-Day, I hope you enjoy this story. Here's Richard Osgood talking about digging band of brothers.
1: A Living History Production.
0: I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, will tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the podcast. We're not walking a battlefield so much today, but we're discovering a battlefield. We're digging one up. We're delving into the history of the Second World War to try and find out more about the famous blokes from Band of Brothers. And joining us to talk about it is a good mate. We've had him on the podcast before. It's Richard Osgood. Richard, thanks for joining us. Hello, Matt. Good to hear you again. Mate, it's a pretty auspicious day, I've got to say. Our relationship began many years ago digging on the battlefield of Messine because, of course, you're an archaeologist and this is That's something right. that uh, that you obviously do with a great passion and we, uh, our, our passions united many, uh, many years ago on the battlefield of Messine and you've just reminded me that today is actually the anniversary of the Battle of Messine in 1917, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> completely oh, so coincidental, to but it's a squashous day.
3: It was 2007. I mean, you think that's a long time ago, Matt. We've known each other ages, but yeah. Well, I mean, it was a that was a fascinating project and um, linked a lot of our shared passions, didn't it? For uh, looking at the First World War sites and tracing those footsteps of the of the, the guys of the Australian Third Division. Um, that was a, a good series of results, I think. And uh, yeah, happy that, happy to be speaking to you on the anniversary of that of that date.
0: Mate, I've got to say, uh, if, uh, if if the listeners look back and watch our documentary, Lost in Flanders, they'll see both you and I in 2007. And, mate, you haven't changed. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a grizzled oh. old version of that 2007 <laughs> self, but age, you haven't changed at been, all. Um,
3: no, you're, you're, you're very kind, but I think your age has certainly caught up with us. But, um, yeah, it's, it's strange to watch yourself on, on a television program and see see the passing of the years, isn't it? But, um, yeah, but it's always, always good to keep in touch and talk about uh, uh, these, these fascinating projects that you and I get involved with.
0: Well, I, I mean, I just love it, mate. And I said shared passion and that's what it's all about because we've had you on the yeah. podcast a couple of times. We talked about mm. the... Uh- the, the the bodies on what was it Rat Island? It Rat what, so they... Island,
3: yeah, I was Rat there island. a couple of weeks ago. There's a few more eroding out, so that that that's a site that keeps giving as well. Uh, so these are people convict. that would have become Australians, yeah, that's right. These guys that were about to be Australians, but they died on the prison ships, um, moored outside the Portsmouth Naval Base and buried on this this island called now by the locals Rat Island. And so, um, yeah, I suppose it's the early stages of of your uh, nation's inhabitants of uh, <laughs> the old convicts, but um. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating site. And and very different to the First World War stuff, but all part of the the whole interest of archaeology and what you
0: can find in the ground. I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but the thing I love about history is how these small little uh, little moments in history can affect us even today. And so you're digging up the bones of, of people who would have become convicts and, and mm-hmm. moved to Australia permanently. Um mm-hmm. And imagine because they died of disease, I assume, on those ships, they never came to Australia. And, and and the the difference there's there's whole families that now never existed in Australia. And I was reading the other day about someone was saying that their father-in-law lived in a little house on the outskirts of London, which was destroyed by a bomb during the Blitz. And because of that, they had to relocate. And when they relocated, he met someone, married them, and then their whole family started. And just a, one bomb falling on that one house change the course of so many lives. I mean you must get as an archaeologist, mate, you must get that every day when you stand it's, out there and touch yeah. that history.
3: It's those sliding doors moments, isn't it? You know, think, you know, just one slight change can change everything. I mean we we, we you know, let's go back to Messines. You've got um where we were digging at a place called Saint Yvonne which is just below the the Messines Ridge. Well you've got um, Winston Churchill who's in the woods there. You've got Anthony Eden, another of the British Prime Ministers in the woods, and up on the ridgeline, Adolf Hitler. And you think you know, these guys, just a strange coincidence, you know, a, a stray shell from either side's artillery could have changed the course of the later 20th, in the middle of 20th century. Yeah, really, really odd. And I saw your, uh, your one of your Facebook posts the other day of finding um, a single um, piece of insignia at Gallipoli. And it's that. Touching the past, touching people and then, you know, learning of just trying to it, you you can't get closer, can you? And you're you're immediately transported to to those days in nineteen fifteen and trying to work out oh, what happened to the bloke? Did he survive? Did he just lose a bit of uniform? Was he a casualty? You know, what was his family, what were his hopes, his lives? And it's just it's I love that sort of really um yeah, the personal elements you can get from finding things in the ground, and that's what really excites me, because archaeology is just about people, and it's those those close encounters you get from from the physical traces that that really thrill me. And it, you know, it can be a prehistoric element, but um, first and second world war just the same, just the same. It's about people, and it's that's what excites me.
0: Well, when I touch those objects from the first or second world war, mate, I the thing that it reminds me that you can't help but think is the last person to touch this yeah. was the soldier that dropped it. How does it? How does it work when you're digging on an Iron Age fort and you come across it's something exactly that's been same. centuries since someone touched? Yeah, it? Yeah, exactly of years. the
3: same. We, um we do, with this this veteran project I'm running with the the recovery of uh, using archaeologists further at their recovery post operational tours. We had a guy. Um, was uh, worked with us on one of the very early ones it was an iron age site in fact a feasting site it's called Chisholmbury midden on the training area of salisbury plain in wiltshire and he this guy uh, rifleman Singh, and he'd found this piece of pot and it had fingerprints on it and he's putting his fingers into these fingerprints these are 2700 years old these fingerprints he's put his own fingers in there and he said um he's got a direct connection with 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 his ancestors just by touching these. And he meant, from an ancestral point of view, the use of the landscape, because Rifleman Singh was from India. Um, you know, he's now, you know, he was briefly in the British Army. So it's not from a geographic point of view, the ancestry, but it's the use of the land. So it's his use of the land as a soldier, but 2,700 years ago, it was the use of the land as a farmer. And he he viewed that as an ancestral link. And, and that was an incredible moment. It's just being able to, you know, um, touch what what had been touched before, but um, yeah, no one's done it for 2,700 years. But same from a First World War. The, you know, you, when you're when you're working at Gallipoli, you know, you as a historian, you examine the battlefields, you look at the writings, you look at the film, um, all these sorts of different bits and pieces. But when you're finding stuff, that person knew exactly what it was like because they were there. So you are touching elements of the eyewitnesses of, of history. And, um, I, yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. It's always good stuff.
0: <laughs> well, it's good stuff we're talking about today, mate, because we're not doing First World War or Iron mm. Age forts or Rat Island. Band of Brothers. Now, forgive me, I don't want to sound cynical, but the, the idea that you would dig in a village in England yeah. that was briefly home to the men from Easy Company um, before D-Day, Mm. It, it, it doesn't seem like an Iron Age fort or even a Rat yeah. Island or a Roman villa. I mean, tell me, tell me about this. Why were you drawn oh, to – and not just, just one tr- year. You've done this several years in a row. Yeah, done it, done it a few times now. This is, a, I
3: suppose, a bit of a strange one. But um, I've been wanting to – one of the things I do in the Ministry of Defence in the UK is we administer a thing called the Protection of Military Remains Act. So every crashed aeroplane is covered by law. You can't just metal detect it or dig it. You've got to get a licence from the MOD. For years, I'd wanted to excavate a couple of sites archaeologically to see what extra information you could get doing it like that. And um, one of the sites I'd sort of considered was a B-17, one of the big American bombers that had flown and crashed near this village of Oldbourne. And this plan actually came to nothing in the end. But the chap that was showing me around said, oh, I'll show you a a small museum I've set up in a stately home nearby, a place called Little House, which is a Tudor Manor house. And, And it was dedicated, in fact, to the 101st Airborne, And I asked him why I did this, he said, well, because Easy Company was based just down the road in Oldbourne. And from my point of view, I was thinking, well, I wonder what you can get archaeologically using the same techniques you'd use for a Roman fort or a um, a prehistoric burial mound, but looking at a 20th century perspective. And for me, it seemed to work as a good idea working alongside these veterans I mentioned before doing archaeology as part of their recovery because it's part of their tribal narrative, their own heritage, their own history, because they'll recognize the military kit. Um, They'll probably have watched the television series, um, which has lasted remarkably well. I watched it recently and I think "Ah, that's lasted well. I was trying to think also of a more famous western allied unit an easy company of the, of the 101st and i couldn't think of any i thought maybe in britain 617 squadron the damn busters maybe your rats of Tobruk. i don't know but it's a single entity i, cu- I couldn't think of one so it's probably the and a most small famous. group as
0: well you know, yeah, maybe, very maybe, small, and, yeah very you know, small group, about. Yeah.
3: they're really well photographed um there's loads and loads of um footage of these guys they do the most incredible um events you think of d-day obviously um but then of course there's um bastone there's the uh, the arnhem campaign they go to the eagle's nest at the end so they do everything from post 1944 onwards and so they are a a, a unit with a huge amount of history and i just thought maybe we could see that there would be some archaeology left because Oldbourne, this little village in wiltshire it was the the longest they stayed together in any one place in the whole war they were there for nine months so they were there, billeted, unit cohesion, f- um, forming themselves as a, as a kind of a unit identity. They're doing a lot of training nearby. So you, maybe they were going to, we were going to find, um, bits connected with their training and about where they basically forged themselves as easy company before they go in on D Day. They do come back briefly after D Day, um, for, you know, a, a, f- a few weeks before the, the Arnhem campaign. And then that's, that's it. They've left Wiltshire after that. So did they leave a trace in these, this football pitch effectively? Um, in the nine months they were there. That that was the mission.
0: Don't take this the wrong way but I assume you needed permission to do this and so did your colleagues scoff a little bit that this wasn't like real archaeology? Yeah well it's, it's, a,
3: it's a good point. Yeah we do need you know you need all the kind of permission from that luckily the football pitch was owned by the, um, the parish council and they all seemed you know relatively happy. I think they thought uh, I'd bring a load of archaeologists which would drink in their local pubs and eat the Chinese <laughs> takeaway and spend a fair amount of money which
0: did happen they obviously know but, um, their archaeologists pretty well they, yeah they've <laughs> obviously watched time team and seen
3: what see what, what goes on there um so we we thought that would be a good thing and i think they thought well you know we'll let them have a go and, and old Born is is actually quite proud of its um links to the, the 101st it's got a little museum there um a heritage center which talks about its other famous things they're, they're very famous for making bells actually so there's a lot of a collection of bells there's a uh a big feature on doctor who the television series because one of the episodes is filmed there and there's some some good prehistory so i think they were they get a lot of visitors from america still post the the television series and they want to come and see where the where the guys from easy company lived so i think they thought i was you know um unlikely to find anything but but you know it was worth a go so we did some geophysical survey and actually there were traces of these huts so it meant that we had a, a good chance of finding
0: something anyway and you've done this so is it three years now you've done this
3: yeah, we've done three years on it. The first uh, attempt was to try and find a particular hut. There's a, quite a famous photograph of one of the, the big names of Easy Company, a chap called Carwood Lipton, who was one of the sergeants. And if you've seen the TV series, he's one of the guys that plots against Sobel to try and get rid of the, um, the kind of very strict commands and make sure that Dick Winters, who eventually does command Easy Company, takes more of a controlling influence. And um, there's a picture of Lipton outside this hut in Oldbourne and you can locate where this hut was because the hillside's still the same and the trees on the hills are still the same so you can stand in the same position as that photographer with the hut um in the, in the kind of middle distance and we thought well we we could see where this one had existed in 1943 and thought we'd do some geophysics and it was there um that we we thought we would we'd try the first of the excavation trenches so first first year was easy company um second year was easy company and this year we've just tried to find where fox company was as well and another little bit of easy company it was there were numerous elements of the 506th that were in this particular area there are lots of diaries lots of photographs and um so we've got a good historic record to go with the archaeology, um, but the key thing for me is is trying to find those traces of, of those particular soldiers through the objects.
0: And you did it in in uh, in in uh, cooperation with Time Team this year. The we did, famous yeah, so we, TV series.
3: We did, yeah. So we've done it um, a couple of times now. So Time Team was this year, and that will be in a in a program that will air later on in 2023. Um, they've issued, I think, various day day by day accounts that you can you can pick up on the internet at the moment on on things like YouTube and um yeah it was a good it was a good success so what we we tend to do is we take the sort of take the turfs off with a turf cutting machine and get down to the foundations of these huts mm, in, mm, excuse me assuming that they were still there and the the turf cutter revealed that yes these foundations are are there they are different styles some are made of brick which is probably where where fox company were located and easy company had concrete footings uh, these are Nissan or oh, nissen huts you know the famous um semi-cylindrical corrugated iron shelters that you could put up in you know three hours a decent team could put one of these up in about three hours um, and that's where where these guys were located You um, we had 16 of them in one of the huts at a what's called a pot-bellied stove in one of them to keep warm I think it must have been quite an emotional experience being in one of these in winter in Wiltshire it certainly was even actually in spring it was quite wet and so yeah you read some of the accounts they painted them in in different colors um quite gaudy and, um, and lived in them for nine months whilst they were training in the hills and the in the fields nearby um, prior to going off to D-Day. And I just think that must be must have been quite an extraordinary time for these people before this maelstrom of D-Day going in. Because these guys go in before the, the beach landings, of course. They're in, in the very, very first waves before um, Utah and Omaha Beach and the American landings there um, to make sure that they're taking out some of the, the German stronger positions and the gun emplacements that are going to be putting fire down on, on the landing beaches. Um, so these there must have been a, a very curious time of relative calm before they, they drop in, in in what must have been hell, frankly.
0: Do we have accounts from the men of Easy Company, in their own words, describing what it was like to be in England? Because it must have been a, a solace, as you say, before the storm. And, you yeah. know, they've come from training in America and this is their first taste of Europe. It must have been an extraordinary culture shock to find themselves Absolutely. in this little... Pretty village in the in the yeah. wheelchair countryside.
3: Yeah, you're, you're quite right, and um, I think it must have been must have been extraordinary. Some of these guys before they maybe went to Georgia for uh, Takora, um, to do the the basic jump training um, around Korahe, uh, it, it may well have been the first time they'd left their state, and then they they suddenly find themselves in in Britain. Well, they take um the troop ship over from America to, to the UK. Uh, they arrive in Liverpool, and then they take um, various trains down at night time to get to Albourne. Um, and a chap called David Kenyon Webster who was an English major, he's a very um, bright, academic, private soldier. He refers to the fact that when they got up in the morning, they they thought they'd arrived on a Hollywood film set because you've got this bucolic village with um, uh, Hollywood-style fairy tale cottages with thatch roofs uh, and things like that, and very quaint and absolutely impenetrable money money i don't know i couldn't i still can't understand british money pre pre decimalisation. so goodness <laughs> knows what are these american lads made of it and you know they're in a war zone so they're, they're they've got they're, they're seeing people who've had you know years of privation and they're under rationing um and a lot of of course the british troops are are away fighting elsewhere um in, in other theaters so it must have been um a very curious thing to fight to fight to find yourself in this Beautiful location, but knowing that the end point is going to be something really quite visceral. Um, so yes, them? a number of them do write about it, um, what usually the local- in, in fairly decent terms.
0: What do the local the, people so- think to have all these Yanks descending on their town, descending yeah. quite literally, often yeah. from the sky? Yeah, absolutely.
3: <laughs> um, well, it, you know, I think I think it probably varied. I think there were, there, there must have been. Um, the conflicts, and we've we've seen um, some quite fun cartoons of British people getting annoyed at the amount of Americans in the pub so they can't get to get their own beer because the Americans are in the queue. Um, I think there were certainly a lot of hearts and minds Campaigns that the Americans ran pretty successfully. There were some, definitely some GI GI brides. Um, there were quite a few kids that were born locally. Um, Spears, who Lieutenant Spears, who was in fact in Dog Company, he did join Easy Company, um, and one of the, again one of the famous characters in the TV series. You may recall he's the one that allegedly machine guns the, the prisoners um, when, when they when they capture a lot of Germans. He's um he gets married in the local church um, in Oldbourne and there are there are numerous others. Uh, there's another chap who's um, uh turns out his 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 grandmother, um, she she hooked up one one of the American uh soldiers. He was a medic. He wasn't actually meant to go um on D Day, but he didn't want to miss the the overall event. So he effectively stows away on one of the C forty sevens, the Dakotas, which was the one that uh, Lieutenant Meehan, who commanded Easy Company, was on, and this thing shot down. Um and the crashes they all they're all killed. And so um, his grandmother is, is left um, pregnant um, by this GI. And so he's got a, a grandfather who was a medic on Easy Company, but, but but never met him. So I think that was probably a relatively common story. And the kids that we met who are now, it's very strange because these, these kids that were running around blagging chewing gum off the Americans and things like that um, they're now old men, of course, so we got old men coming to our, our excavation site and um, talking about the american presence and um, where well, one of these guys had a, a little toy monkey, a, a cuddly monkey called Switzy the monkey and um his his mom how did he put it', it was quite delicate he said his, his his mother struck up a close personal friendship with one of the uh, one of the American officers <laughs> who, very, very um, close for the sounds very of it. very close friendship yeah and he, um, this in fact this um this guy um gives this kid's toy monkey um, a screaming eagle badge and an airborne badge. And so, you know, oh, my goodness, he's got a, his toy has got this, these Easy Company badges that are probably worth a fortune. And um, this the he did say to me, I, I don't know what happened to this officer. And, you know, we did the research. And sadly, the officer was very badly wounded in Karentan, um which is one of the, the early engagements of Easy Company. And um, he's then medevaced to initially to, to near Utah Beach and then to, to cambridge in the uk and then his flight he's flown back to the states because he's that badly wounded but his flight crashes into the sea and he's killed um so oh,
0: no.
3: so he sort of dies of wounds but it's um yeah it's a well, quite a convoluted tale but um i think i think the americans made made a huge impact um on on the brits i mean there's the that classic line of the, the americans were overpaid oversexed and over here um that the brits used to refer to it but um you know these guys in sharp uniforms who haven't had you know they're very physically fit, they haven't had the privations and uh, of of rationing and all this sort of thing, um, but they're there fighting a common cause. I think they did probably make quite a big mark in Oldbourne. and since then a lot of Americans have come back. a lot of the veterans did return to Oldbourne to visit their um their old haunts and their families have come since and there are still believe it or not Bander brothers tours that come over from America to visit the the main fighting places in Normandy and and, and the Netherlands and places like that, but also to see the village where in many ways it it all began um, in the sort of fighting um, perspective, which was was Wiltshire.
0: It's fascinating to talk about those relationships between service people and the local people. And in my collection, I have a book, a, a, a bound book, which was from the Second World War, and it's designed for Americans to explain what life will be like in Australia. And uh, it's it's a yeah. fascinating, it's it's yeah. wonderful to get that perspective of Australia from a foreigner, not just from a foreigner, but from a foreign government that talks about how much tea the Australians drink and virtually no oh, coffee, right? and they, they eat eat extraordinary amount of lamb, and you, you know, <laughs> so sheep in Australia aren't just for wool; they're also eaten by the local people, if you can believe <laughs> that? that.
3: Goodness me! But it's me. a
0: it's a it's a big PR exercise because, yes. as you say, hearts and minds. It was so essential, and I've seen posters. I think there's one in the uh, Villas Bretno Museum in uh, in France. Uh, which shows a, a picture of an Australian with a slouch hat on, and it says, "This is an Aussie digger. He's a friend of America." You know, so it, it it really was that that hearts and minds uh, perspective, the the idea that it was a collaboration. We're all in it together against the nasty Germans. It, yeah. it was a really important part of the whole process.
3: Absolutely, and uh, you know this this sort of replication from the, from the First World War. You know, you and I have talked about machines on on many an occasion, and uh, you know um, I'm sure many of your listeners know that the the Australian Third Division comes in slightly later to the war in the First World War, and they do their training for machines um, on Salisbury Plain, uh, you know where I'm where I'm based. And um, this is a detonation of mines that plumer no, sorry, sorry, that uh Monash puts together as being part of plumer's army, but uh, Monash gets the training so in so much detail that it's a huge success but again there is still the 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 phenomenon for the brits of you've got a huge arising of of people from totally different culture in many ways arriving in your small village in wiltshire i mean Till's head were on base. They had the Canadians, including with Winnie the Pooh, um, the mascot Winnipeg the Bear. Genuinely, we um, had the New Zealand uh, with the with the Maori Pioneer Corps, and of course the Australian Third Division. And there are there are numerous cartoons of Australians in a very similar light to the Americans in the Second World War of you know the locals being 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 told about, you know, Australians coming here and fighting for the same cause. So it is this thing of you've got to do your um, your hearts and minds campaign and make make it very clear both to the, the soldiers coming in but, but also to the locals that it is going to be a strange cultural experience but you are fighting for the same cause. Um, and um, they certainly did that for Easy Company um, at Oldbourne. There was even a training film by the – I can't remember the name of the actor but the the, the actor is the guy that plays Rocky's trainer in the in the film rocky and he's the leading actor telling you about the uh um, how the brits drink ridiculous beer and um (laughs) it's warm and all sorts of strange stuff like that And they've got this game called darts and and stuff stuff like that and it's really charming looking looking back on it but um you know probably probably quite important i I know what my experience of it is that when we put certainly from uh, veterans of a modern perspective you know british soldiers next to australian soldiers next to um american soldiers of recent campaigns together there's there's a lot of humor there's a lot of banter but um they all do seem to get on pretty well because they're all part of the same tribe as in soldiers um and i think the soldiering experience probably from at least those three nations is probably quite a quite a similar experience
1: millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds
2: salads generally for most people are the easy button right LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
0: Is there a uh, pub in the town, Richard, where you know that Easy Company used to come in and have a beer at the end of the day?
3: Yeah there is and uh, we we certainly help support that this year um there's there's Two two one One. There were, there were. I think there were five pubs when Easy Company were there in in the forties, and there are two that survive. And um, one of them is the the Crown, and that's the other Anx pub. And if you go in there today, there are lots of photographs of the old veterans when they'd returned. Um, people like Wild Bill Garnier and Babe Heffron when they came back. Um, so there's them as as young soldiers and photographs of them. You know, um, nowadays. In fact, if you watch Band of Brothers, Babe Heffron does make a, a little cameo appearance, which is quite sweet. You know, he's one of the Liberated villages in uh, in um, Eindhoven. He's sitting there outside the pub, and it's one of the real members of Easy Company. So he uh, th- that's the other ranks pub, and then the officers tend to drink in the Blue Boar, which is up by the church. And again, it's a it's quintessential
0: great name, pretty, Great name.
3: Ah, it's a great great <laughs> name, great pub, very pretty pub. Um, you know, half timbered and looking out over the village green. Um, the village green's super. Um, it's got the, the it's a 13th century church with Tudor icons in it. Um, and we had a curiosity last time we dug there um last year because we had one of the australian infantrymen know, who was on his recovery program a guy called scotchy who a Royal australian regiment and um he was out there we were drinking in the blue Boar and he was chatting to his his mum about it and she said did you know your grandmother used to live in oldbourne in wiltshire if it's the same place and it, indeed it was and sent a photograph over and we found it it was the house nearest to the church so complete fluke it was out serendipity, we didn't know, but yeah, Scotchie, um, you know, emphasising the closeness of the nations, even in, uh, in coming back to dig with us, and that's a uh, um, yeah, that was a, a nice tangential thing we had. Um, but it's, it's always good to have. Um, we had this. At, we've had this at, uh, on most of our sites. Have veterans of different nations working together, and of course, when we're working on the Band of Brothers project, having American veterans and servicemen and women is a great thing um, because you can see how much it does mean to them because it is an important part of their their, their national military history um and when they're finding i don't know grand rounds that had been held by members of certainly the 506th parachute regiment probably from where we were from by members of easy company that's that is that's quite a rush to be honest as uh you know from a brit that's a rush but from an american who's grown up watching the tv series band of brothers that's that's really quite something
0: and speaking of the tv series you had some of the actors come out from time to time as well yeah we did um,
3: we it's that's another really really good thing um the uh, may, you, you listeners may know that quite a few of the actors are are brits in fact most of them are brits um so the guy that plays um the uh, dick winters is uh you know damon lewis very famous british actor but lots of the others are british as well so we had um one of our stalwarts is a chap called tim matthews who plays penkala in the tv series and penkala is killed in the village of foy in the Ardennes. and he's hit with a, a with an 88 millimeter round. um but so tim comes along and it usually brings um bring some of the others so Shane who played Doc Rowe um, he's he's been along and we've had uh, Rick Warden who plays um, Harry Welsh who's features very heavily in Carrington he's he's come along um, and it's great it's lovely and uh, what, what's nice is, is to see um, my veterans who've grown up with the tv series being excited and getting all the autographs and then you know seeing the actors being quite bemused because they're only playing at being soldiers, whereas my veterans have done it done it for real, so they know what it's really been like. And um, when you're making good finds at the same time, and um, these the guys that played band, the actors the actors in the Band of Brothers, Brothers um, they went to boot camp for ages, so they formed a really strong bond, and they do still meet up with one another um, and have reunions. They'll probably, I'm imagining, going over to be probably in Normandy as we speak, given that yesterday was the anniversary of D-Day. Um, and so for them it's, it's quite a thrill to be able to see where their characters were and they really do identify with the characters that they played in the tv series and of course none of easy company are alive anymore so it's in many ways keeping the memory of those 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 boys of 43 and 44 going um that, that keeps keeps them and their uh, their excitement continuing
0: i think well it's brilliant richard we should talk about the dig what, what, what yeah. were you hoping to find and what did you find
3: well, it's an interesting one. we, we, we were hoping to find um, any traces of of those soldiers, both in terms of their training, um, their their downtime, um, and, and hopefully, maybe even finding some of the British stuff, because the the site was used by the British Army before the Americans moved in in 1943. And we were, you know, we were moderately successful in finding British stuff. You know, we're finding um, charges of 303 rounds and the odd bullet, the odd button, um, the sort of thing you find on the Western Front, In fact you know, the GS, the General Service button, that sort of thing. Um, but from an American perspective over the three years we've been astonishingly lucky and I've, I've we joke amongst the team that you could put together a mannequin completely covered in um american militaria now that would represent a paratrooper so i think the, the you know the really exciting finding and we found lots of you know grand they call them charges don't they grand charges uh, no, know they're called clips don't they clips grand, clips, grand yeah. clips and bullets um we found um lots of buttons we found um buckles that were on the on the boots made in providence rhode island it's not like doing prehistory it even tells you when the things are made so providence rhode island and as you know all the bullets have got date stamps on them so 1943 44 made in illinois and things like this uh, springfield um so that's all fun um the, the real the really f- exciting things are when you're linking to the paratroopers themselves so we found um an emergency parachute pull which is painted red um, it's very very definitely American we found paracord we found bits of parachute itself um, we found uh, a clicker. You remember the, the film The Longest Day actually is also in um in Band of Brothers where they have this kind of strange kid's toy that just makes a clicking noise to identify yourself as an American soldier and you reply with two clicks. Well we found one of those made um bizarrely by Acme and I thought they only made things for wiley e. Coyote actually <laughs> but so you got this clicking toy um and they were only issued to the Americans to the 101st uh, down at a pottery airfield in Exeter on the morning when they're flying out or the the evening when they're flying out for D day. They weren't used again because it's a one you know, one-hit weapon, really, because the Germans then clearly know what they're for. So this is a D-Day item, and it's come back, I mean, just chucked away or dropped in a field in uh, in the sites where Easy Company lived. And then, again, linking to the people themselves, two dog tags, one of which was to a Richard Blake, and he was a a 21-year-old who was, actually, no, he was a 20-year-old who was in Able Company, so one of the other companies of the 506th, and he fights on, drops in on D-Day, and then he, after that, goes to Arnhem where he's badly wounded and that's the end of his war but he lives you know good old life and he died not that long ago and then the second dog tag we found was in fact a member of Easy Company it was a chap called Carl Fenstermaker who was a Protestant um, all this is written on his um, on his dog tag it's got his blood type on there and all sorts of things and he was one of um, one of the two pathfinders of Easy Company so again he drops in even before the paratroopers drop in before anyone else drops in. And he does D-Day. He does Market Garden. He drops into Bastogne. He's one of only 20 paratroopers to drop into Bastogne. And then he's used um, as the German translator because he's a German speaker. He's Pennsylvania Deutsch. uses the German translator when they liberate um, Dachau, the concentration camp. And so, you know, he's done some just astonishing things. And I think from all the accounts that I've read about Fenstermaker, who's one of the names of Easy Company, it was the latter thing. It was the Dachau experience that did for him um not not necessarily his fighting experience it's the you know man's inhuman inhumanity to man um, that he found in the concentration camp and from what i was i've read he was unable to hold a job down after the war and didn't you know live for a huge amount of years after it um and as a result he's a sort of um you know, he's a—he's almost a representative of what we're trying to achieve doing this project of recovery and rehabilitation for our vets just to, to enable them to have a pathway to speak about their experiences and to maybe avoid what Carl went through after the war. Um, so that's a
0: powerful it's thing. It's an extraordinary story, and you would think that as yeah. a German speaker, yeah, you would think that as a German speaker he would be connected uh more viscerally to that experience because he would be able to speak to the survivors of the concentration yeah. camp where and, obviously and- for the other members there was a language barrier which probably kept them at a bit of a distance.
3: Maybe one stage back absolutely, yeah. So he he had all that. Um so yeah, we're we're finding these things connected with the Americans. We're finding, you know, the you know, some of the fun finds of the sort of um spam tin keys and K ration keys and uh I don't know, other stuff there. The, you drink a Pepsi bottles. Um, we found some stockings in one of the huts. So again, back to your, your hearts and minds campaign, maybe going particularly well. Um, and just all the things about their, their their life, I mean, rations and fighting elements. We found a quite a bit of German ammunition as well, which is maybe a bit of a curiosity. Belted um, components from an MG 34 or 42 machine gun, um, lots of uh, German um bullets we found um a fuse from mine uh, bits of german grenade and that's because they're using um german equipment which they've captured to test to see how effective this stuff is what it sounds like um the effective radius of these things and just learning about your enemy um, which is the sort of thing i suppose when you think about it logically yeah that's what you'd expect or hope that they would do but they're doing this in Oldbourne as well so we're finding all their um their training was probably pretty good um and in the fields all around us um we, we go into the fields nearby a team goes out there and finds foxholes or ops that the guys have dug in training for the battles that they're going to face and so that's a very useful uh, tool for us to see that they're doing training all around the area they're firing bazookas we have found a a few of those which is a bit more emotional than the normal small arms that you find you have to treat them with a little bit maybe more respect Uh, and then you get carvings in the trees and i know we we've chatted before about finding australian carvings from the third division where they trained and you can trace the names of these people and with the australian records being so good and all online you can find out exactly their service history as well we haven't had quite the same success with the americans but we have had place names and initials left by guys that are american um and that that's another nice touch because again it's that hands-on you're putting your hand on exactly the same place where a gi was just before dropping on d-day and then you're putting yourself in their their position you know what were going what was going through their their mind when they carved their name um yeah quite quite something
0: it's that philosophy of soldiers to leave their mark, isn't it? That they, it is. You know, when they're facing death, and not just death, they're facing the risk of being lost in combat and disappearing from the face of the earth. So they're, they're desperate to leave their mark
3: they do uh, Some the things soldiers will always do there's graffiti everywhere you look at the i mean i suppose the film gallipoli when you see the um the, the carvings left by the french on the pyramids of egypt right you know there's, there's there's certainly an element of truth in that we've got english civil war graffiti from the 17th century in fonts and uh, there's viking graffiti in a neolithic chamber tomb up in, in orkney and they will always do it that's one of the one of the things that soldiers always do is probably the polite thing that soldiers will always do that we can talk about <laughs> comfortably but um yeah have you, have you uh, seen have you been to know.
0: the village of noir in france richard where no, the, happened- the underground right. city where there's a this is an extraordinary one where there were underground caves dug into the chalk which had been used for mm. centuries by the local people but during the first world war they were actually a tourist attraction and they'd open up these caves and invite people to come and tour through them and the obviously the british officers desperate to find healthy diversions for their troops when they weren't in the front line did organize tours of the caves with platoons of soldiers and the soldiers using their indelible pencils. Thousands of them wrote their names on the ch- on the chalk walls. And because of, oh, the, because of the environment, it's been preserved. And now you can go into these small little chambers, smaller than the room I'm in now, absolute, the wall's absolutely covered with the names and, and, and details of soldiers oh. who served there. It's an extraordinary link with the First World War.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that is interesting. I think they, there's a fairly similar thing in Arras as well, isn't there, under the caves there. They've got um uh, writings. And we found um, when we were redeveloping the artillery centre at um, Lark Hill, on Salisbury Plain, they found a load of practice trenches um, and tunnels um, used pretty close to where the busted trenches were with the, third, the Australian third division used. And there were lots of names written in pencil there. And there was in fact an Australian BC winner who'd written, written his name on, on them as well. So I think, yes, you're quite right. It's uh it's those traces of, of people that are, um, are I don't know, when you're doing First World War stuff, it's I find those incredibly moving when you're linked directly to to people that, that experience those things that, that you and I are fascinated in and they, they live through it. um, Yeah, quite incredible.
0: I'm going to come back to Easy Company now and be slightly controversial for a moment. I heard years ago yeah. about a, a, a an archaeological event in Gallipoli where they didn't dig anything but they just looked for surface finds and after a large amount of money had been spent and a lot of time had been spent. They announced their fines and they said, we found uh, bullets and we found food tins and we found scraps of uniforms. And it's really a great success. And um, I heard someone say rather cynically, and I didn't agree with this by the way, but I heard someone say rather cynically <laughs> <waiting> about <laughs> it. What does that tell us? That they ate food, fired their weapons and wore clothes. <laughs> um, so I'm going to put that to you. I'm going to I'm going to put that for the layman. They go, well, we knew that Easy Company were there and were firing their weapons and practising jumping out of planes. So what does the experience of archaeology on that site at Oldbourne tell us about Easy Company?
3: I think it's perfectly reasonable comment, actually. I think so. I think it's a very it's a very fair thing to say because you're quite right. We're not changing the story of Easy Company one iota. We're not changing the um, the story of the Second World War or of D-Day or anything like that. But what we find uh, by what we find, but what we are finding from my perspective is a real way of engaging participants. So you're getting a, a youthful generation. Um, you've got all the local school kids coming up, and they are bowled over by by what we're finding and linking to these Americans, and that's perpetuating the memory so we're not we're not changing the story but we're continuing the story we're making sure that that story and the legacy of those men continues through their memory being perpetuated in many ways um, I think you know it's, it's great seeing photographs of the Americans and all their kit um, but if you go into a museum there's something quite powerful when you see relic quality or rusty elements of the real thing Um, Dropped by the real individuals um, or thrown away by the real individuals. So they're quite right. We're not changing anything. And yes, they did just eat food. I mean, I think there's some nice touches finding, you know, the Hearts and Minds campaign of there are a couple of female badges and the stockings and stuff like that. But you'd sort of expect that. So it's not not changing the story at all. Um, But it is those palpable traces and links to individual soldiers, things like Richard Blake or Carl Fenstermaker, um, that maybe would get lost in the noise of the whole thing of Band of Brothers. But these are individual people they are um, particular soldiers we are maybe pointing out that it wasn't just easy company in that field so blake was not easy company and there are other other units um that were there i don't think we're changing much by way of the history but we are continuing the history i think is probably the what will the archaeology is giving us it's continuing that memory plus also for my veterans they enjoy it and it provides an incredible well-being experience um, from that from their point of view 10 days spent in the nice field, drinking good beer with friends, chatting away around a campfire. Um, That provides an incredible experience. So maybe just the memories, unearthing the memories of those men of pushing 100 years ago is helping modern soldiers um, in their recovery journeys. And I think that's probably the, the really important thing about it all
0: yeah I think it's a it's a very noble cause and and I think keeping that history alive is very important it's 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 not enough I talk about this all the time people say, well why do you go to a battlefield on a battlefield tour for example can't you just read a book about it or can't you just watch Band of Brothers and understand what went on? Um, but as you and I will know Richard, there's nothing like walking the ground and experiencing it firsthand so I, I I think it's very noble work um where are the relics ending up are they on display?
3: they are um we we've, we've just uh, we 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 keep telling the museum they're going to have to get a new building because uh, you know the the scene in jaws where you're going to need a bigger boat well they they're saying to need a bigger museum because we're filling it with rust gradually um yeah they are on display in the Old Bourne Heritage Centre um so they are technically still owned by Wiltshire Museum which is in Devizes all the property of uh, the, the Wiltshire Museum but um, they're on permanent loan to the local village which means anyone who comes to the village to trace the story of Easy Company they can see the finds of our excavation and get in you know close proximity with with the finds that that link you directly to those those days of the 1940s and I think that's important um, that they stay as local as possible I think that you know for whatever the subject that it's all great having the British Museum with wonderful things in but, you know, if you can have those wonderful things based locally, then I'm, I'm really keen that it does stay like that. And certainly in Oldbourne, you can still see all the finds that we've made, dog tags, clickers, bits of helmet, ammunition, all that sort of stuff, all still there.
0: Oh, I think it's brilliant, mate. I'll, I'm, I'm heading over to the UK next month, and I'll be making Oldbourne one, one of my uh, destinations to go and check brilliant. out. And hopefully, during the time I'm over there, hopefully you and I will get a chance. Well, we'll certainly get a chance to have many beers, but hopefully we'll Chicken get a a 506 beer. There is such yes, a thing. We could do that. Fantastic. <laughs> And uh hopefully we'll get a chance to go out and get our hands a bit dirty and uh, do some archaeology because it's been it's been too long mate. It's been too been long a while. since 2007. Maybe I'll so get you out to that.
3: Rat Island. That'd be good. Oh,
0: I love the sound of that mate. That yeah, would make okay. it for a great podcast. We'll do that for okay. sure.
3: Let's think on that. Nice one.
0: Great stuff. Richard, always a pleasure to catch up mate. And if you're listening to this, Richard's been on a couple of our other podcasts, Rat Island, uh The Bullockore Dig on the First World War tank. We we talked about that uh, a year or two ago now, so look that one up. But um It's great work you're doing, mate, and it's always such a great pleasure to speak with you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Always a joy. Thanks, Matt. Good to speak. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.